Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. If you ever take a wrong turn on a hike or have a family member who fails to turn up on time, you might have to rely on local search and rescue teams to help out. Finding people who are lost takes knowledge, training, and technology, and often requires special skills to navigate steep terrain, open water, or dense forests. Today we'll hear from some experts who help out their tribes and others to bring people home safely. We're back right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. In an effort to combat high rates of violence, murder, and the disappearances of Native people, a three-day listening session began in Albuquerque, New Mexico, Wednesday. KUNM's Alice Fordham reports the hearing is part of a nationwide effort to collect testimony. It's the latest of several hearings by the U.S. Interior Department held in areas with high Indigenous populations. The process was laid out in a law called the Not Invisible Act, which was proposed in 2019 by current Interior Secretary Deb Haaland when she was in Congress. A real solution will never be found without the voices of Indigenous survivors, which is what is so special about this bill. Now, a body called the Not Invisible Commission, including advocates, tribal leaders and law enforcement, is travelling the country holding discussions and collecting testimony. At Wednesday's event, panelists discussed the difficulty of recruiting police, especially in tribal areas, and commission members raised their frustrations at inconsistencies in help from law enforcement, from tribal police to the FBI. Commissioner Patricia Whitefoot's sister went missing decades ago. There was a lack of any consistent and meaningful communication with myself and my family of my sister missing uh, for that long. And... and it's, it's difficult to say how angry you are about all of that and the anger that family members may carry. The U.S. Attorney for New Mexico, Alex Ubayez, announced the creation of a new Department of Justice program assigning 10 attorneys and coordinators in five regions to help combat the violence and disappearances. On Thursday and Friday, the Commission will hear from relatives of the disappeared. Two more hearings are planned this summer, and the Commission is expected to submit recommendations to combat the crisis in the fall. For National Native News, I'm Alice Fordham. Canada's top Native leader has been ousted as National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. As Dan Karpinchuk reports, the decision came after an investigation into her leadership. It was the second time Roseanne Archibald faced questions about her leadership. She was suspended a year ago by the AFN's Executive Committee and National Board of Directors, but was reinstated pending a third-party investigation. Following that probe, AFN members voted 71% in favor of removing Archibald from her job effective immediately. Paul Prosper is a regional chief with AAFN. She breached her obligations to the company, um, contrary to her oath of office to our code of conduct and uh, the whistleblower policy. The decision comes after the investigation ended into complaints made against Archibald last year. 
In a draft resolution, investigators found that she harassed two complainants and retaliated against all five complainants for coming forward with their disputes. She was also found to be in breach of the Assembly's confidentiality agreement. Archibald became the first woman to lead the largest First Nations organization in 2021. She has maintained her innocence. She has also called for an audit and independent investigation into the AFN over what she called corruption and toxicity within the organization. The interim national chief will step into her role until an election is held for a new chief in December. For National Native News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk. The U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development announced Wednesday it will make $75 million available for tribal communities through the Indian Community Development Block Grant Program. Grants can help fund infrastructure, public services, economic development, and more. Applications can be submitted through September. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The second annual Nakota Lawrence Youth Hoop Dance Championship comes to Santa Fe's Museum of Indian Arts and Culture August 5th and 6th. Registration for Native Hoop Dancers up to 26 years old open through August 3rd at lightningboyfoundation.com who support this show. Ready to start, manage, or grow your small business? The U.S. Small Business Administration can help with advice and resources. See what SBA can do for you. Go to sba.gov start. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce, hosting from Juneau, Alaska. The Yurok tribe is now among entities using specialized drones and certified operators to help locate people who are missing. The tribe says it's a tool to aid in their efforts to fight the missing and murdered indigenous people crisis. Increasingly sophisticated tools such as drones support search and rescue operations where every second counts in order to bring a lost person home. But sometimes it's the time-tested work of volunteers and community networks on the ground that make the most difference. Today we'll hear from groups and individuals involved in search and rescue across several communities. Please share your perspectives. Are you involved in search and rescue in your community? Are you connected to your local search and rescue network? Or have you or a loved one ever been the focus of a search and rescue mission? Join this conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. Feel free to also post on our social media pages such as Facebook and Instagram. Our first guest today is joining us from Klamath, California, Alana Wright. She is the Senior Paralegal and Special Tribal Criminal Jurisdiction Coordinator for the Yurok Tribe. She is Yurok and Hoopa. Alana, welcome. Thank you. Joining us from Quapaw, Oklahoma, is Caleb Landers. He is the Deployment Manager and Canine Handler at Quapaw Nation Emergency Management. Caleb, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. 
Also joining us from Quapaw, Oklahoma, is Hugh Murray. He is a canine handler for Quapaw Nation Emergency Management. Hugh, welcome to you as well. Thanks for having me. Well, let's go ahead and get this conversation rolling here. And Alana, I want to start with you. And I understand that the use of drones is a relatively new program there for the Yurok tribe. Tell us how you're applying them to these search and rescue missions. Well, we're, we're still um, we're still trying to figure out exactly how they fit into the community. Um, as far as search and rescue missions, um, the, the drone has been one of the first ones to respond to incidents on the reservation um, because it's local, because it's in the community, and I live in the community. Um, I've been able to respond uh, even before the official call goes out by listening to uh, the Coast Guard helicopter or um, the sirens as they go by. So I'm usually the first one to respond. Um, I am equipped with thermal technology. Um, I can see people if they are in uh, rough terrain, if they are in the water, uh, if, as long as they are above water, I can see their heat signature. Uh, so when someone is in a life and death situation, um, often the drone can be the one to find them first and pinpoint their location. Um, uh, it's also been used as a, uh, I can do grid searches, so I can, I can sweep really wide areas that need to be searched. Um, and I can track those movements and give them to searchers so they know exactly where I've been. Um, I've been the support to two uh, ground searches and canine units. Uh, I can run lines over over rivers if a swift water rescue needs to happen. Um, I can provide a light. I have a spot that's attached to this drone, so I can provide light when it's dark. I can fly in the night when other uh, aircraft cannot. So it, the the range of is is pretty broad. It sounds like, Alana, and it sounds like these aren't just your typical drones that somebody might find uh, on Amazon for $59.99 or something like this. These sounds, these sounds really, really pretty high-tech there. Tell us more about them. Uh, are they expensive, and, and what kind of training did it take to, to get to this point where you can operate these on search and rescue missions? Well, there, there is some specialist you can attend where you learn how to um, fly these things. Uh, the drones themselves are GPS locked. So they, you're able to know exactly where they are. Um, they attach to the lights. They don't need cell service. Um, but mm -hmm. the, this drone, these drones in particular, are relatively expensive. Um, I think this it's an Autel Evo 2 640T, and it is. It, I named it Empty. I wanted it to have a cute little name. Um, <laughs> uh, and it's okay, uh, it Alana. I'm sorry. You know we're having a. We're having a little bit of a challenge there with your audio. So we're going to go ahead and take uh, have our engineers take a look at that with you. And in the meantime, I'm going to bring in another guest we have on our show today. His name is Dan Martinez, and he's joining us from Warm Springs, Oregon. He is the Tribal Emergency Manager and a member of the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs. Dan, it's great to have you on the show. Absolutely. Well, we're learning all about uh, search and rescue missions today and uh, just the origin of some of these programs. And, and, and tell us a little bit more about your community, Dan, and what are some reasons that a person might go missing there in the Warm Springs area? 
Um, well, first of all, um, I appreciate the call. And uh, above and beyond that, um, Warren Springs uh, Reservation is a thousand square miles, with a good percentage of that being, uh, uh, you know, the forest as well as dry lands and, and a number of rivers that runs through her. We also have a 10 million acre agreement of um, seeded lands that we also uh, respond to an event along the Columbia River. We have issues, so. Um, uh, we, you know, we get involved with body searches, with a number of type of white water searches, um, and then, of course, our traditional fishing sites, uh, which is 147 square miles of uh, allowable rights for fishing. So how we got involved with this was, you know, um, the tribe has always been involved with their searches when it comes down to our missing people uh, uh, since the turn of the century, if I may say so. But we finally organized it back in the late 70s. Um, and to date, we uh, we average out about seven to nine searches a year. Uh, just in the last couple of months, we've had seven active search searches. Um, we still have two still missing, and uh, we had one successful. Well, actually, two. Um, one that we found um, that was deceased. I can't say it was successful as far as his life is concerned, but we did find he, and then um, one that came walking out of the forest. So. Um, Yes, um, uh, quite the challenge when it comes to get organized and putting the logistics and the incident command, um, in which I'm involved with as far as logistics. I used to be the incident commander, um, but since then we've since turned it over to the police department because of missing reports um, and those kind of issues. The biggest concern we have today and now is, you know, tribal people don't wait but 24 hours to report a missing person. We do it immediately so we can get an active search underway. I mean, um, so. A lot of agencies follow the 24-hour rule, and we don't. So uh, just to mm -hmm. kind of give you a heads up on that. So somebody can call right away within an hour and say, hey, I've got a relative. They're not home yet. We're worried about them. And then about how long does it take your teams to mobilize and get out there on the ground, in the air, in the water, where they have to be? It's, it's instant. Um, you know, um, we have natural resources along all riverbanks, um, with, you know, with, with – basically support staff and rather it means walking along the river if that's the indicator of a missing person in the riverway um, we have body nets that we could activate um, it's an in instant spontaneous response from our natural resources to our public safety personnel to air support um, it, it's it's considered an emergency until otherwise noted so we treat it like a two-year-old missing i mean it's it doesn't allow time to be the factor but rather the response of motivating and getting teams together and getting them actively involved so uh, we do it spontaneously and instantly mm -hmm. dan i've heard stories and data before that if a person goes missing and they're not located within a certain time frame the prospects of, of that ending well and then being recovered safely go down dramatically what's kind of that that pressure zone when you really want to get to people uh before it's too late well, you know, that's always been a challenge given the weather, um, type of the year it is, um, you know, the heat index being one issued in winter um, response. Uh, well, we don't like placing all people at risk if and when we know there's a, you know, they've been missing three days and it's 40, you know, um, 20 degrees minus out there or even 35 degrees. Um, the river is, uh, you know, is a rapid search because of, you know, the time frame, you know, you know, five to six minutes and a lot of those guys kind of go under the waterways. 
So it's mm-hmm. it just depends on the time of the year and um, how quick we can get out there to, to start to search. But um, a lot of times it's not always successful because we treat it as, you know, again, like a two-year-old missing. We, we want to get out there as quick as we can, get a drone up, get, get activate the search and rescue teams um, from all parts of our agencies. Um, it becomes a, a priority for us. I mean, spontaneously, it's a priority where we get out there. We want to do our best finding the lost one. Well, Dan, we're going to take a break here in about another minute and a half. But if you could tell us uh, a story or an example of one of these searches that went especially well and that you found really rewarding. Um, okay. Um, well, there's been a number of them. Um, again, most recently, last summer, we had a gentleman um, that was the one located up at our High Lakes Mount, below Mount Jefferson, which is probably about 30 to 35 miles from the primary location from our uh, headquarters. He actually walked out two days later and uh, caught a ride from our natural resources and, and ended up at our public safety personnel at our ambulance service and, and was treated and released. I mean, so, um, you know, we found young kids that came up missing, you know, a three-year-old that walks out the door and, and you know, amongst the community members, we activated and, and, you know, and we found those young people. So a number of, you know, through the years that I've done this, there's a number of, of success stories and, you know, that, that brings a lot of pride back to the community as well as to our search and rescue team. Um, you know, they, they, we have the grid searches, we have dogs that come out to help us, we have cadavers, um, air support whatever it takes to, to find the individual. Again, we don't wait 24 hours. We get right on it, um, you know, and, and how that 24 hours ever came about is just nonsense in an Indian country. It's nonsense. You know, people are missing. We get out. Okay. All right. Search and rescue. That is the focus of our show today here on Native America Calling. We're learning about what goes into these operations in tribal communities. We'll be right back. A Wampanoag chef made history at this year's James Beard Awards. And if you think you know all there is about corn, you'll find out a lot more in Red Cliff Band chef Bryce Stevenson's new book. We'll talk all about that and plenty more on the next episode of The Menu on Native America Calling. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. We're speaking with those involved in search and rescue about what their work entails. Are you a search and rescue volunteer? Is there one in your community? Join our conversation, 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. A reminder, you can listen to today's show and past shows on all major podcast platforms, such as Spotify and Apple. We've got Dan Martinez on the line now. He is the tribal emergency manager up in Warm Springs, Oregon. And 
Dan, uh, listening to, to what you've described and also our other guests uh, on the show today, I'm interested in learning more about what type of training and experience is required to go out on these searches. Is it a pretty big investment of time and, and effort and money for people that want to get involved in this kind of work? Absolutely. Uh, you know, it takes a, a certain amount of training, whether you're, <clears throat> you're training cadaver dogs or search dogs or you are wanting to fly a drone or if you're in the whitewater rescue uh, or if you're in the mountain rescue. Uh, we get in the wilderness um, first aid. We get into um, having a medic, having an officer, having, uh, you know, special folks that know how to track down the trails and, and um, know the area and then, of course, knowing how to track um, so we have the hasty teams. We have a team of horses that go out. We have a, yeah, the primary thing that we do is activate in that search, and we rely on our outside resources. If we don't have a trained personnel, we turn to our counties and state for that resource, including the Bureau of Indian Affairs or anyone else that gets involved. So it takes a certain amount of training, an expensive amount of dollars that are invested. Um, we most recently send one of our natural resources guy that patrols and you know we paid out close to two thousand dollars just for a week training but they go out in the field and they learn how to read the compass the, the terrain and um, and put it all together and, and they actually go out and search for somebody and, and that's the only way they pass is finding that individual whether it's a child or a dummy or whatever it may be but a lot of extensive training goes behind it uh, i was fortunate enough to, you know to come out of the military as a marine and knowing how to search was part of my uh, motivation in, in making sure that we could continue on with these trade-ins. Well, thanks, Dan. I want to go back now to Alana, who's also on our call, and, and Alana is a drone operator. And Alana, tell us more about these drones that you're flying there in, in your community. I, I know you've been doing this uh, since the beginning of the year, a little bit earlier than that, perhaps. And um, have you had some some big successes so far with locating folks that have gone missing? Um, yes, and and sorry about the communication earlier, um, but but yes. Uh, so we the thing that the drone allows search and rescue to do is to cover extremely wide areas uh, in a relatively short amount of time because we're not um, hindered by uh, a lot of terrain. Um, what, bushes and rocks and things are, are no problem for a drone, you know, they're flying right over it. Um, so I can, when it's a life and death situation, uh, the drone can cover massive amounts of area very quickly. Um, and successes, uh, I would not say that I have had a find so far. I'm, I'm still brand new at this. Um, we've been doing, I've been on several call outs since February when I got my pilot's license. Um, and these drones, there's two of them. One of them's named Anti, and the other one's named Bingo. Um, they are both equipped with thermal capabilities, so I can see into the night. Um, I can fly through the night when other aircraft cannot. Uh, I can see heat signatures even if they're in water. Um, so I think just the, the rapid response is what the drone is best at. It can be deployed in less than 30 seconds. I love those names, Auntie and Bingo. So, Alana, are are you on twenty four hour call? Can you get a call anytime, day or night, and just you've got your drone right there, and like you said, thirty seconds, you're up in the air. Is it that fast? Yeah, I I have integrated myself into um, Del Norte Search and Rescue, so I do receive uh, their 
their call out, so you usually hit my um, phone. Um, the sheriff also has my personal number. Um, I I told him anytime he needs my assistance, he, he's more than welcome to call. Um, so I'm I'm trying to integrate myself very deeply into the community and who and anybody that might be responding to these incidents. And how long can your drone stay airborne? I have four batteries, and each battery can run roughly 30 minutes when it's flying hard. Um, it also depends on the wind and the temperature. Um, there's a lot of variables, but generally I'm in the air for about 30 minutes, and I can fly at about 32 miles an hour when I'm, when I'm in the air. And Alana, what drew you to this kind of work and your interest with flying drones? <laughs> well, my, uh, my dad flies drones as well. He, he has a DJI Mavic, and I was always very fascinated. I've been a, kind of a video game buff since I was uh, young, and um, that's something I am good at is uh, controlling things like this. Not, not necessarily a hiker or a dog trainer or anything like that, but I did want to assist, and the drones seem like uh, right up my alley. So I, I, you know, I'm going to look into this, um, and uh, it's been a need in the area. I don't. There's not very many pilots in the area. I don't know if I can speak for any other uh, tribes that are on this call, um, but it's it's a it's a, a blossoming uh, area. So I just wanted to jump on it when we when we're still um, having the capability to do so. So it's been it's been pedal to the metal since I started in February. So it's really exciting. I'm learning so much as I go. Pedal to the metal or, or pedal to the throttle, maybe. That's a it's just really fascinating. And, and like you said, not only is it, you know, not that popular yet or not widely used in, in tribal communities, but, you know, just as a hobby, you see so many more people using drones and like people getting them as gifts and things like that. And what you've done, taking it to the next level, is just really inspirational. And Alana, before the show, we were chatting a little bit and um, you shared how it, it's just, it's really easy for a person to go missing. And I think sometimes when we, we read these reports, oh, campers went missing, hikers went missing. And sometimes it's very easy to think, oh, what were they thinking? You know, they should have been more careful. How could that happen? That's not the way to, to interpret some of these missing cases, is it? No, um, and I'm sure the, the other searchers in this line can attest to it. You know, um, a lot of times someone is, is familiar with the area that they're lost in and, and just got turned around. Um, the, the mountains, the land is very deceptive if you're, if you're not very experienced and, you, and you're not paying close of attention. If you're, um, a lot of times what we've been seeing is as hobbyists, um, people doing what they do normally, uh, gathering, hunting, um, fishing, or whatever they're doing normally. And it, I would just attribute it to almost bad luck. Um, you know, it, these places, these wild places, reservations are often in the wildest places. Um, I have said that they are zero mistake areas. You make one small mistake, it can lead to a, a domino effect to where suddenly you're you're needing assistance getting out. So it can happen to, to anybody of any age, any fitness level, um, no matter your equipment. I've, I myself have been in an area where I was familiar with and have been turned around before. Luckily, I was with people who knew knew where they were. Um, but it's 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 very easy. So, what do you recommend for folks that do go out in the woods sometimes, camping, hiking, fishing? What can they do to make sure that they don't wind up uh, as the focus of one of your searches? Uh, well, I think the the main thing is to have someone always know where you're going and what time you should be due back. 
um, especially if you're by yourself. Even if you're with a, a group, you know, um, to having a, a protocol for for when someone is not returned back when they're supposed to be. Um, that way you can activate search and rescue as quickly as possible to give us the most amount of time to find you. All right, good information being shared here today on Native America Calling. This is Alana Wright, who is a, a drone pilot there in Klamath, California. And our other two guests today are, are joining us from Quapaw, Oklahoma, Caleb Landers and Hugh Murray. And uh, I want to talk with Caleb first and tell us more, Caleb, about the history of the Quapaw Nation's canine search and rescue unit. Um, our search and rescue canines are fairly new to the tribe. I believe that it began initially in 2018 with Hugh being the first search and rescue canine handler. And in that amount of time, we've now got Hugh as a full-time employee and then myself is also on as a part-time employee just for search and rescue canine handling and training. And about how many searches uh, so far or every few months does, does your canine unit get called out? Um, Here recently, we've been used a lot more in uh, recovery cases. Uh, We've been getting a lot of calls from Arkansas to go and help recover people that have been missing for, you know, anywhere from a month up to a couple of years. That's a long time, a couple of years. Hugh, I want to bring you in now. And can you share an example of how your canine unit made the difference on a recent search? Sure. Uh, We've had... Uh, some pretty good successes uh, recently. Uh, one would be um, helping in a drowning case uh, where our dogs were able to get on a boat, um, give us a pretty good trained final response uh, that we were able to mark down on a mapping um, application that we use. Uh, and they were able to take our underwater drone and locate um, the people that were had drowned. Uh, that is one uh, good example. Another one was we recently had one where a woman had been missing for over a year, and we were able to go out into a pretty austere environment um, with the help of great volunteers that we have, great people that volunteer for our team, great dogs. Um, we were able to cover a lot of area and actually um, locate, um, unfortunately, her remains, but um, we were able to locate her and uh, return her to her family. Hugh, that case you just described were uh, the drowning incident. So you're telling me that the, the dog is able to to get a scent of, of something under the water? That that kind of yes. capability? Yes, wow. believe it or not, it's, it's it's even crazy when we train it. And, you know, it's uh, we do it, and it's still kind of awe-inspiring when you see the dogs do this. And in the case that we're talking about, the, the, the victims were approximately 185 feet down. Uh, that our dogs were able to give us a signal on. That's just amazing. Well, tell us more about the type of training that these animals have. It must be really, really intense. Yeah, we do a couple different trains because we're we are also capable to do uh, what we call what would be search and rescue, which is a live find. Um, so we we you know we'll have um, some great volunteers go out. They will hide in the woods for us or in a building, um, and then we will send our dogs to go look them um, and then they give us a signal and we come and you know of course perform the rescue uh, as far as the recovery goes we are very very fortunate um, 
not many people are able to get the biologics that we do. We have a company that has actually put us on their roster. So the families of the deceased may choose us uh, to have some of their loved ones remains go to so we can train, um, which is invaluable. Uh, It can be a sensitive subject, but the same way you would have a narcotics dog or an explosives dog, you need to have narcotics and explosives to train them. We also need to have, you know, the proper material so that we can do these missions. Um, so it can be very intense as far as, you know, what, what it is you're doing. And, you know, you keep in mind that these are people that are no longer with us and their wonderful families have made this decision to, to share their loved ones so we can go out and complete our mission and hopefully recover uh, more people to return to their family. Well, it sounds similar like to an organ donor program. So yeah, really commendable of, of families that are willing to, to make that sacrifice. And Hugh, do you folks actually train the dogs yourselves or do you send them out to somebody who does it as a specialized expertise that's required to do that? Uh, at this point, we're training ourselves because we have enough experience, um, years of experience in doing it. Uh, I have been to wonderful schools uh, that, that brought me along when I was absolutely green in this. Um, so my first dog was actually paired with me. He was trained before I got there, and then the uh, um, the gentleman paired us together, and we trained together. So I kind of learned that through my dog, basically what it, we were, what it was that we were doing. Because the dog, the dog, once they're switched on, we have high drive dogs. Once they understand what the what we're asking of them, they can really help the handler out, especially when you're new to the game. Okay. Caleb, back to you. Uh, I'm thinking that all of this training, these specialized animals that can do this kind of work, I'm thinking this isn't a cheap program to run. No, it, it's really not. There's there's a lot of cost that's involved with it. Um, just the purchasing of the appropriate dogs is, is pretty costly. And then you talk about vet care and you know feeding them and then just the amount of time that we spend training the dogs it it gets pretty expensive really quick what are the best breeds for canine units um i don't really like to say a specific breed it's more on the dog we look for what we call drives and they have to have a hunt drive and then also a toy drive and if you can find those two things in in just about any dog then you can make them work and Caleb, what is it about dogs? You know, he's a little staying uh, man's best friend, but but what is it about them that makes them so well suited for this type of work? They can cover a lot of area quicker than than a human can, and they can also get into the more austere environment, um, up in briar piles and things of that nature. And then just the nose. I mean, the the nose on these animals are absolutely incredible. So they they're able to narrow down that odor quicker and locate the victim. Now, Caleb, are you folks working with other tribal communities that have canine units and collaborating and sharing best practices? At this point, we do not have anyone local to us that is is a tribal canine program. Um, We've spoken with one other tribe that is trying to get their program up and running, and we're more than willing to help anybody get started. And other municipalities or, or non-tribal jurisdictions, you're working with those folks as well, right? Yes, we will go to any law enforcement agency that calls us. Uh, we'll go and assist them. And we do work with a couple of the uh, murdered, missing Indigenous women groups. 
And, you know, when they give us a call, we kind of work with them and law enforcement to, to go and, and help locate those individuals. Now, once you get a dog trained, is there a timeline? I mean, do they have like a peak period when they perform the best and do you eventually have to retire them? About how long do they stay in service? Um, it, it all depends on the dog. Uh, you know, generally around eight, nine years old with, with some of your more intense breeds like the Malinois is when you start looking at maybe retiring them. Well, this is a really, really interesting conversation we're having here on Native America Calling today, folks. We are learning all about search and rescue operations. We're learning about water rescues, mountain rescues. We're learning about drones and uh, people that fly drones, also canine units. Sure would like some community involvement here on this show. Anybody listening with a comment or a question, if you know something about canine units, maybe you're a drone pilot yourself and kind of interested in maybe trying trying your hand at a search and rescue and would like to learn more about what that takes to to get that kind of qualification or, or learning more about being a canine handler this is the show for you folks so give us a call 1-800-996-2848 we've got open phone lines so what are you waiting for we'll get your comments on the air 1-800-996-2848 more with our guests when we come back from this break Challenges to societal harmony abound. Trauma, depression, addiction. In Native communities, these challenges affect nearly everyone. The Native American Social Work Studies Institute educates social workers for careers to address the needs of Native communities. You can be part of the solution as a peer support worker, community health worker, or a counselor with culturally relevant training from the Native American Social Work Studies Institute. Info at online.nmhu.edu. New Mexico Highlands University supports this show. Native America Calling, and there is still time to join our conversation today around search and rescue members and volunteers. Please add to our conversation by calling in 1-800-996-2848 or just 1-800-99-NATIVE. We'll get your comments on the air, folks, so give us a call. One of our guests today, Dan Martinez, is the Tribal Emergency Manager at Warm Springs in Oregon. And Dan, listening to this conversation today with yourself with alana caleb and hugh and, and uh, you know it's 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 such commendable work that you folks do but it must just be so emotionally challenging at times because as you've shared these searches don't always go well there's not always a happy ending so i'm interested in, in what you folks do for self-care just to maintain that healthy mindset doing this challenging work well it's always been a concern of mine you know as a former fire chief and, and medic myself you know we always felt it was critical thinking and, and crisis intervention and getting mental health involved um you know when we are dealing with our own people that were searching for um you know uh, in the most recent search it was my relative so you know you have that close connection with your community members um with community families that that goes full circle so yes you need some um mental health recovery time, you need to discuss it, you, you have a hot wash, you have a review of what went right, what went wrong. We don't talk about what went wrong because that just criticizes uh, and it changes the critique. So we talk about, you know, what we, you know, what went right for the most part and what we could do differently to, you know, to, to satisfy the search or what we could have added to the resource list or the logistics or operation. But it is critical, and I'm glad you brought that up, because the mental health aspects of it is the absolute on, 
on being the healthy mind behind any other search because they sometimes they come back to back. I mean, uh, you know, you don't have a chance to recover yourself, so you have to really um, monitor it and watch your people and make sure they're 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 capable of mentally handling the next search. So that's a good question. Mm -hmm. Hugh, back to you. Uh... Self-care, do you find yourself ever emotionally stressed where you just need to kind of step back and take some personal time to to adjust and evaluate just what it is you do every day? You can. Uh, I think I think you also have to see the positive in doing a recovery as well. There's a lot of families that never know what happened to their loved ones. Um, so there is a little bit of a bittersweet moment when you can actually return, a, uh, uh, you know, someone that we've lost to their family. Um, uh, we, we, we definitely lean on each other. Um, our fire and EMS department, they have meetings for their guys all the time that we're more than welcome to join into. Uh, we have a wonderful uh, Quijota Center that uh, offers counseling, uh, some great counselors over there. So, you know, besides our family and friends, we have a lot of outlets, um, but I think – I think for us, it's a passion. Um, we're very glad to be doing what we're doing. Uh, this is a true passion. And, uh, you know, we work with the uh, victim advocate groups, family advocate groups. And, you know, uh, so far, I would, I'm lucky to say I've been able to keep everything in perspective. And I've had plenty of people around me that if I was having an issue, I'd be able to lean on. And Hugh, what about your dogs? I to what extent do you think they are able to comprehend the seriousness and the enormity of the work that they do? Yeah. So when I first went to one of my first canine schools, they would tell me that um, my attitude runs down the leash. So if I'm tense, the dog's tense. If I'm happy, the dog's happy kind of situation. Um, what we train the dog for the reward has to have, a, you know, we call party time with the dog handler. So, you know, that can be quite sensitive. We are extremely sensitive, but, you know, part of our training method is that when the dog finds what we're asking them to find, we have to reward them. We have to have a moment of play with them. Um, so the dog under, you know, they don't, that's their reward for it. So we need to, you know, always be very, very cautious um, and respectful, but at the same time, these are how the dogs train. These are how they keep doing what they're doing. Um, so it's more along the lines of, of trying to remain respectful, but at the same time, the dogs need to have their reward moments so they keep doing what they're doing and not get depressed. And Hugh, do you spend time with your dogs outside of work just to continue that relationship? I imagine you have to have a really good bond with those animals at all the time. All the time. Yes, uh, it's, there's people do different things. Uh, currently my dogs are at the kennel, but normally they're with me so I can deploy because uh, my dog is a dual purpose. So if I was to get a call in the middle of the night, I could leave right from my house um, with my dog to go for a live find search. Um, that of course is going to be time sensitive. Um, I believe wholeheartedly in the bond. I believe wholeheartedly in having that party time with them, as we call it. Um, you have to have that. You have to build the rapport with the dog. There's there's, it's invaluable because the, you start reading the dog, the dog starts reading you and you become a, a, a very good team that way. Um, and, and living with my dogs, that also shows them that, you know, we're off right now, but then when we go to work, 
we switch that on and and that's also helps to create you know that work environment for the dog and the relaxed environment for the dog now hugh have you always been a dog lover did you grow up with pets and were you always familiar with how to how to handle animals yes i was uh grew up with pets all my life uh i think when i first became aware of uh really how great these working dogs are is when I deployed to Afghanistan, uh, they put on a demonstration for us on how the dogs work and gave us a lot of informa- uh, insight and information, you know, on what they do and exactly how they do it. Um, and I think Caleb touched on it a little bit earlier. Um, one of the things we learned is these dogs break down each individual odor by themselves. There's roughly 40 million odors that these dogs can pick up on where the human nose only picks up on 5 million uh, comparably. So, they're able to, to really, you know, you, you, you really can't mask anything from a dog because they break it down. Uh, it's each individual component. So when I started learning that and seeing how valuable they were, uh, you know, on patrols in the military, being able to find these bombs before our patrols get to them and things of that nature is really where it sparked my interest. Um, so I was fortunate enough to after get out of the military. Um, I was able to actually find a company that took the GI Bill. And I've loved this business ever since. I mean, it's, it's, it, re- it truly is a passion. You have to have a passion for it, as, as every one of your guests would tell you, because it is. There are ups and downs. There's austere environments. There's, you know, you're going out when, when a lot of people don't want to go out in bad weather, you know, things of that nature. Um, possibly, you know, knowing that you're going on a recovery. It's, it's, it can be emotionally drained, but you, you need to have a passion for this business. And, and certainly with the dogs, that helps me in particular, I can tell you that. Yeah, it just uh, really just makes me appreciate uh, you, Hugh, and Caleb, and Alana, and Dan, and, and just what you folks do and how hard you work to, to keep communities safe. And I, I want to go back to Caleb now because it really makes me question and, and ponder just the search and rescue community. I mean, it, it sounds kind of like a subculture and that you folks are all dedicated to, to these missions, to these tasks. And um, what's that like? Like, do you, you know, just being a part of that? elite group of people that that has this mission has this focus in life and um how do people get involved in this yeah it's definitely you know there's it almost becomes a second family sometimes i spend more time with my search and rescue family than i actually do my my own family at home you know and and i'm blessed in having an amazing wife that supports me and i'm sure everybody that's on this call with us today has that person that understands that at any moment we can be called out it doesn't matter if you're on date night watching a movie when that call comes in we go um you know it, for people that want to get involved in this it's you know looking at the time that's spent in, in the money because most of this is volunteer work and people are spending their own money but you know you can get a hold of your local emergency management director and they can get you started on the right path of you know becoming a volunteer for their search and rescue team and back to Dan Martinez now. Dan, when you're not actively out on searches, uh, does your program, are you folks providing education and outreach to the public on some of these issues about safety and just overall well-being? Absolutely. Um, you know, we hit, you know, we, we train, 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 and we educate, educate, educate. We have a, a you know, a local cert youth team that we train to, to do active searches. They range from the age of 12 to 18. And we have 460 of those kids that we train every summer um, for that reason, for 
disasters or collapsed buildings and for active searches. Um, you know, and, and we also work with our veterans, me being one myself. Um, you know, earlier, uh, you know, the gentleman speaking about having the passion. You also have to have the compassion to understand that um, people are, are, you know, are, are alarmed by missing people, the missing woman, the, the missing child, the, the missing biker. I mean, it's a true emergency in the sense that you have to have that compassion to hear them out and, and to sit still with them. To, and, and yet you're anxious to get the description, you're, you know. And so I have certain people that do certain things for the certain, you know, that are trained to take those uh, in their account, the police department, whoever. But we have to immediately get the, um, the record going. And so I have active searches. And at the same time, we have to educate the community um, that, you know, uh, you know, these are true emergencies. Um, and, um, and then there's the traditional side of it. Um, you know, when we have a local search party and we have to do a recovery, like we most recently did, uh, we don't say that name for one year. Um, we, we, you know, we want to make sure that we respect the family's ways on those traditional values. So there's a lot at state. And then when we do find um, one, um, whether it's a recovery or, or an active search, um, there's prayers behind that. There, there's the traditional way of, of blessing the ground or blessing the air or blessing the drone that found them or, or the persons. And we and we join hands and, and we bless. We have this blessing amongst ourselves for healing. So, and it's and it's so unique because we also invite the outside sources that were involved with that search. So it, it has its um, high points and low points, but. Education and the training is the absolute, working with the youth, working with our elders, um, and, and then um, praising each other uh, and, and making sure we do have the compassion. Because like the gentleman said, you get called 3 in the morning. Um, you know, you get called in any hours of the day, and, and you're tired from your active day as it is, and you got to get up and, and organize. Um, you know, and I think we got one of the best teams in the nation. One of my thoughts now is getting together with, Native American throughout the United States and, and Canada and say, how do we join forces? How can we um, look at those expertise and um, instead of waiting uh, 24 hours and above and, and searching for local teams outside of the region or beyond, um, how, do we, how do we connect? How can we uh, rely on each other's resources and command structures and, and, and how can we better um, serve our communities, whether you're in New York or California or Oregon or Washington or wherever? You know, how do we activate that, and, and how do we raise funds to do that? Because there are right, experts right. there. We have mm -hmm. experts everywhere. So anyhow. Well, Dan, I'm really glad that you mentioned uh, the spiritual component to this, especially from a Native perspective and, and bringing in prayers and things like that, because that really does put a fine point on our conversation today again. You know, this is Native America calling, and we want to get those, those Native perspectives uh, at the community level. Uh, really good information. And Alana, I want to go back to you because you come at this from a, from a tech standpoint. You've got Auntie and Bingo up in the sky and you've got your thermal tracking and all this cool stuff. But I, I'm curious to know, I mean, as technology evolves, what types of new and innovative types of technology and tools do you envision in the future that could, could make it even more impactful for these search and rescue missions? Well, it... I mean, it really depends on how many, you know, much funding you have, how much resources you have at your disposal. Um, I mean, 
there's under there's so many types of drones and there's so many types of software that go with them. Um, the drone is limited by its software it runs because um, it, it has a really good eyeball, but the computer process has to 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 go through that. Um, there's underwater drones. Um, you don't have the limitations of of people when you do have drones. So um, there's drones that can go deep underwater. Um, really deep underwater. There's drones that can go way, way, way up in the air. There's drones that can, um, that, like these, there's drones that can track. Um, I can get a software program and I can run a grid pattern and I can have the computer process it and I can have it set to, um, like say this, this person is wearing um, a red shirt and uh, bright green pants. I can program the computer software to look for that as the drone runs a grid pattern without me controlling it. Um, and I'm just watching the computer while it eyeballs um, colors on the ground. So it it's it's evolving before my very eyes. Uh, I'm just trying to keep up with it, really, um, as we make leaps and strides with it. So I, I'm, I'm hoping to to integrate some of these things into our, our local search and rescue. Um, it, it's really – it almost seems like I'm talking about a space-age – stuff here but this this is becoming available at our fingertips now um nasa technology and, and things like that so really our the limitations are only in our minds mm. yeah that's a good point there the, the future it's just uh the possibilities are certainly endless and uh we had a caller from gallup new mexico by the name of betta who uh, was not able to come on the air today, but Betta says thank you to all of our guests today uh, for the work that they do and everyone else who is engaged in these search and rescue missions on every level, management, volunteers, trainers, handlers, uh, just so many working parts in, in these great programs that help to keep our community safe. And we really wanted to do this show today about search and rescue just to to give credit and to acknowledge uh what some of these folks are doing and these programs are doing to keep our communities safe so with that we have reached the end of our hour today and i want to thank our guests again who joined us dan martinez alana wright caleb landers and hugh murray for sharing their time and expertise to discuss search and rescue efforts in native communities we're back again tomorrow with another installment of The Menu with Andy Murphy. Among other things, she'll highlight a native chef who picked up a historic award. Enjoy the rest of your week, and we'll talk again soon. Education sovereignty. It begins with us. That's the theme of the National Indian Education Association's 54th Convention and Trade Show to be held in Albuquerque October 18th through the 21st. You have an important role to play in the ongoing effort to reclaim education sovereignty. The agenda includes an educator day, a student day, professional learning opportunities, and the NIEA awards ceremony. Early bird registration is July 28th at NIEA.org. Support by Amerind. Indian Country's 100% tribally owned insurance partner. Amerind works with tribal governments and their business enterprises to provide effective commercial insurance coverage, strengthen Native American communities, protect tribal sovereignty, and help keep dollars in Indian Country. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto solutions at amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com.
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.